because they gave evidence that they were authentic followers of Christ. So those are the three uh, things that we're going to try to look at. And I should have gone over and listed this, sorry. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at the display of affection. Now, if you look down at the passage that I read to you, you'll see that it's full of terms of endearment. In verse 3, he tells them, tells the Philippians that he's thankful for them and for the memories that he has of their time together. Uh, in verse 7, he tells them that he has them in, their, in his heart. He, he carries them in his heart. In verse 8, he tells them that he longs for them. He longs to be with them. He longs after them. And you get the picture of a very sweet relationship between Paul and the Philippian uh, church. Now, uh, it's all, I think it's all centered on one thing, their fellowship in the gospel. Um, and that's what he discusses in verse 5. He makes mention of their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So the memory of these folks in Philippi and all that they have done for him and for the cause of the gospel made his heart well up within him in thanksgiving. Now, he had obviously enjoyed the time that he spent with these Philippians and he obviously enjoyed the three subsequent visits that he engaged in as he travelled through the area and went further down towards Corinth and then came back up again. So he obviously enjoyed the initial time and he obviously enjoyed... Uh, the three uh, additional visits that he had with them. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says of the Philippians that they are his joy and crown. That's high praise, isn't it? He says that they are his joy and his crown. And uh, one of the words he uses to describe this bond, this bond that uh, ties them together is the word fellowship. Koinonia. And I just want to say a few things about this fellowship that they had with Paul. First of all, it was spiritual in its basis. It was fellowship in the gospel. They had both been transformed by the gospel. Both parties. He had been arrested um, on the Damascus Road and his life had been radically turned upside down. His entire value system had been changed. And they had been arrested. And we, last time we thought a little bit about the Philippian jailer and we thought about the little servant girl who was abused and exploited. And we also thought a little bit about Lydia, the seller of purple. And... Uh, What tied these people together was their common share in the gospel. And isn't that the only true basis of unity? There is no real other basis of unity. Sometimes I trundle around, I see people trying to to manufacture unity around all kinds of other things. But our unity is surely based on the fact that we are brothers and sisters in the family of faith. That we've experienced the same salvation, the same gospel has broken into our lives. We have uh, the same Father. We believe the same things that salvation is by faith, through grace and in Christ alone. And, and that's the basis of uh, the unity that he enjoyed with these Philippians. But the second thing, it's one thing to talk about being brothers and sisters in Christ. The second thing is that it's practical in its expression. Not only is it spiritual, but it's practical. They hadn't only embraced the gospel themselves, they had felt responsible for its proclamation to other people. They heard the good news of Jesus, and uh, they heard how he loved them and gave himself for them, and they wanted other people to hear the same news. 
So he says, I thank God for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day that you believed until now. Because that sense of partnership and that sense of oneness in the advance of the gospel had continued right through to this present moment that Paul is writing to them, probably from a prison cell in in Rome, uh, at least during his first imprisonment. So how did they support him? They had supported him financially. Uh, we know from, uh, from Philippians 4 verses 15 and 16 that they had sent a gift, a financial gift to him when he, when he was driven out of town and he went to uh, Thessalonica. They sent money on with someone to support him. Uh, when he went down to Corinth, remember later when he was writing to the Corinthians, he said, I, I didn't want to be a burden to you. I didn't ask anyone for anything. <coughs> And the reason that he was in a position not to ask anyone for anything was because the churches in Macedonia, primarily the church in Philippi, had sent money down to support him during his missionary endeavors in Corinth. This church in Philippi knew more than any other church that they had a responsibility to ensure the gospel was taken to the ends of the earth. They had a vision, not just for Philippi, and it's great to have a vision for Philippi, but they had a vision for the world. They thought about Corinth and Thessalonica and Berea, and they wanted somehow to fund gospel ventures in these, in, in these places. And it's been a joy for me to come here periodically and hear you talk about the New Beginnings Church uh, somewhere Mexico or somewhere like that or where is it? Argentina, Argentina pretty close I think in, relatively speaking a bit away so here is the question if we don't support the work of the gospel who will? Like, who will fund missionaries if we don't? gospel people don't and it's our responsibility and these people had done that I was listening to the last sermon just the other day of John last missionary sermon of John Piper in Bethlehem Baptist Church and what struck me was that they had 327 people sent out from that church and serving on the mission field. That's a phenomenal number of missionaries. 327 uh, missionaries that had been sent out and were being supported uh, by by this church. So it, uh, it was practical and it was continual. It, you know it it had continued from the first day until now so it's easy to get enthused about something and then just kind of drop out and interest wanes and you're bound to have seen that in in the work of this church where people come and they're all gung-ho and you think brilliant we've got some help here and then the next thing they just disappear but here are folks and they stayed the distance and they went the course he says from the first day until now you stayed with me and you've supported me and you've helped me and and that's why I think Paul looks at these people with such uh, terms of endearment that's why he longs for them that's why he's thankful for them because of their fellow in the gospel. Well, the second thing is this. I want us to think about, as we think about his in terms of endearment, think a little bit about what he says about the Philippians. We've thought about how they've supported him. How did he then support them? Well, first of all, he says that he's thankful for them. Uh, he's thankful for them. As he thinks about the Philippians, he finds himself welling up with a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving. Obviously he's grateful for their support but, and grateful for the interest that they have taken in him. But isn't it interesting to notice that he's thankful not to them but to God? 
Because it was God that had broken into their lives. And it was God who had saved them. And it was God who had kept them. And he's not about praising the Philippians. He's ultimately about praising God. And he's thankful uh, to God for the Philippians. And for the way that they had been kept. But lest you uh, think that Paul is only thankful for the church at Philippi. Because you know they're putting their hands in their pockets. And they're sending money to Thessalonica. And, and then with Timothy and Silas right down to Corinth. No, no. Remember the church at, at Corinth? It torn apart by division. The Paul group and Peter group and Apollos group. And then there was the really spiritual people. They were the Jesus people. And, and uh, remember how they were allowing one of their members uh, to live an immoral life. Sleeping with his uh, father's wife. Whether it was his mother or whether it was a new wife that his father had married. But there was immorality in the church. And the church at Corinth hadn't addressed it. And the amazing thing is that uh, Paul writes to Cor- the Corinthians in chapter 1 verses 4. And he tells them that he is thankful. Thankful for them. He's thankful. It's not his church. It's God's church. And it's God that's done a work in Corinth. And it may not be perfect, but it's ongoing and, and, and God will carry it to completion. Many of us are a bit like the nine lepers, aren't we? That were healed of leprosy. And we fail to come back and tell Jesus that we're thankful. Like, how good has God been to us? Like, Where would we have been today had it not been for the intervention of God's grace in our lives? We'd have been in a spiritual mess. I had to think where I would be. But God in his goodness broke into my life. And and we have so much reason uh, to, to be thankful. He's not only thankful, but he says he's prayerful. There's very little that he could do for them practically. He can't send them a gift, a big check to buy a new building. He's struggling just to survive in missionary work himself. So so there's not a lot that he can do for them financially. But the one thing he can do for them is pray for them. And he does pray for them. Every time he prayed, he says, he makes mention of the Philippians. He had a prayer list. And right at the top of the prayer list was the Philippian church. He may not have been able to be with them, but he brought their name to the throne of God again and again and again. Not only do we suffer from a problem of ingratitude, we also suffer from a horrible sense of self-centeredness. God bless me and my wife John and his wife us four and no more. But here's a man with a prayer list. That spans the first century world. He's praying for churches wherever he goes. He's praying for churches in Philippi. He's praying for the Ephesians. And he's praying for uh, folks down in Corinth. He's he's praying for churches all over the place. Um, Do we take our place in praying for the work of God? I always find it interesting that the prayer meeting is probably the hardest meeting to get people to get involved in for whatever reason. And I know that life is busy, but but we can't do it on our own. We need God. We need the strength of God. We need the help of God. We'll fall flat on our spiritual face if we don't have God. And that's why there's one thing we can't afford to sacrifice, and that's prayer. He also tells them then that he's joyful. He's joyful as he prayed for them. And uh, sometimes Paul's prayers for people are marked by other emotions. Uh, Romans 9 verse 2, he says that his heart's desire and cry unto God was that all Israel would be saved. And you sense a great burden and a great sense of sorrow. 
And in Galatians, when he tells the Galatian Christians that he's praying for them, he writes to them and he says, I'm I'm perplexed, I'm confused. How could you allow yourself to be uh, dragged into such legalism so soon after I had been with you? This is crazy. How did this ever happen? And he's confused and he's troubled about what has happened in, 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 in Galatia. But here, when he's talking to the Philippians, he says, You know, I pray for you and I'm filled with joy. Because so much to be encouraged about. Many of them were going on with the Lord. Many of them were encouraging and supportive in the work. Many of them were an inspiration and they brought great delight to the heart of the apostles. Some folks are a joy to remember. And it's a joy to pray for them. They are loved Christians. However, the sad thing is that not everyone fits into that category. And as you pray for some, you find yourself overwhelmed overwhelmed with feelings of sorrow. What happened to them? How did they end up in such a mess? Why are they allowing other things to take God's place in their life? Why have they become so disorientated? Why are they not walking with Jesus? Isn't it fair to say that some people are just a joy to pray for? And other people cause you to have a heavy heart as you pray for them. Well, let's think secondly about the basis of his assurance. So, so he's full of joy for these Philippians. Why is he so full of joy? Well, uh, he says it's based on his belief that the one who began a good work in them would carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus that, that's, that's the basis of his confidence in regard to the Philippians so first of all salvation was something that God had begun he hadn't intellectually persuaded them to embrace the gospel God had broken into their lives. This was God's work. It wasn't his work. If you were chatting to Lydia and said to Lydia, so how did you become a Christian? She would say to you, well, some missionaries came to Philippi and on the Sabbath we were down at the river and we were studying the Bible together and one of them took us through the Old Testament and he explained how it's all pointing forward to this coming Saviour. And then he told us that this Saviour was Jesus of Nazareth who had been wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And I believed the message. And I put my trust in Jesus. But when Luke tells the story, He doesn't tell it like that. He says, God opened Lydia's heart. Because Luke knows that, yes, maybe there is a personal response, but ultimately this is a great work of God. I don't know if I've ever told you about C.S. Lewis. And uh, in his his biography, his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he tells about the conversation he had with an atheistic student. Well, first of all, he he tells his own testimony and he says, in, in relation to himself, he says, I gave in, when he became a Christian, I gave in and I admitted that God was God. I knelt that night probably one of the most dejected and reluctant converts in all of England. But God had conquered my will and opposition and I bowed at his feet a vanquished foe. As C.S. Lewis described his testimony. And when he was writing to that atheistic student, the, the, the student was peppering him with questions. What about this? What about that? And eventually Lewis wrote back to the student and he says, he says to him, I think that you are already in the meshes of the net. The Holy Spirit is after you and you will never get away. 
And salvation is a work of God, isn't it? And he says, he who began a good work in you. And then he says, he will carry it on to completion. Salvation is something that God carries on to completion. He doesn't save us and then leave us, sort of say to us, well, we'll see you at the end of the journey. Have a nice life. I've made you a Christian now. I'll see you at the end of the road. No, no. God walks with us and carries on this great work that he has begun in us. He's saving us. He has saved us already from the punishment of sin. But he is saving us from the pollution of sin and the power of sin. He's breaking its control in our lives as we journey on with him. So salvation only begins when we're converted. But God carries on a great work of sanctifying us and molding us and making us more and more like Jesus. And says Paul, I am absolutely sure that the one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. He will not leave you and uh, to your own uh, survival. And I see that. I, I've seen that again and again and again. Like I used to look out of my church. I probably told you this story before. And in that congregation, in that sea of faces, I, I saw people who had lost their children. And lost their life's partners. And lost their job and lost their business and lost their health. Even now I can still see a man sitting way down at the back going through chemotherapy, bloated and blown up out of all proportion. But there he was every Sunday without fail. And I used to look out and say, why? You've experienced enough to snuff out your faith forever. Why are you still here and why do you still press on with Jesus? And it's because this work is not my work, it's God's work. He begins it and he carries it on to completion. So it's a work that God will complete. Uh, it's a work, what a day it will be when Jesus comes again and we'll be like him. And we will see him as he is and we will be forever with him, never to be separated again. This is Paul's assurance for, 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 these, um, for these people. Well lastly, what's the marks of authenticity? Because surely there's got to be some evidence that these folk are the real deal. And he talks about two things. He says, first of all, they've confirmed the gospel. In, in, uh, says in verse 7 that they'd confirmed the gospel. Um, so Paul ha- had been thinking about their support for him when he was in prison. He may have been. They'd confirmed the gospel. They, they didn't shy back from, oh, he's not with us. You can beat him all you like. He's not one of us. No, no, they stood with Paul. They confirmed the gospel. And they confirmed their place with the gospel. But um, I think what Paul means by that is that everything Paul said that the gospel would do in a person's life had been true in the lives of the Philippians. He said, a good tree will bear good good fruit. These people have been transformed by God's grace. And just you watch, you'll see good fruit. Everything he said about the gospel had been confirmed in the lives of the Philippians. This was the real deal. These were genuine believers. They had all the marks of authenticity. Some of us confirm the gospel. We've given evidence that our hearts are ruled by Christ and the fruits of the Spirit are dangling from the branches of our lives. But isn't it fair to say that there's other people and their behavior is an absolute contradiction of the gospel. Everything the gospel said 
Everything Paul said the gospel would do in in their lives just hasn't happened. They're grumpy, cantankerous, foul-mouthed. They've no desire for worship. There's been no real change. Well, that's not true of the Philippians. He's sure, absolutely sure, that uh, these folks had been transformed because they had confirmed it and they had defended the gospel. I think he must be thinking about the time when he was put in prison. They, They had defended the gospel. Like, if someone's prepared to put their life on the line for Jesus, you know they're the real deal, don't you? Like Richard uh, Cameron sitting in the Tollbooth jail in Edinburgh, uh, and, and uh, actually Alan Cameron sitting in the Tollbooth jail in Edinburgh, and the dragoons burst in with a head on the end of a dagger, and they hold it to Richard Cameron, and they said, Do you know it? And he takes it and he kisses it and he puts it on his lap and he says, it's my son. My only son, he says. And then he launched into this soliloquy and it is the Lord who has caused goodness and mercy to follow me and mine all the days of our lives. Like, what do you conclude when you throw your worst at a man and you still can't break him? You conclude, there's a man. And in his heart and life, God is at work without any shadow of a doubt. God has begun a work, and God is carrying it on to completion. And one day he'll see Jesus, and he'll be like him. Well, there it is. I think this is one of the great texts in Scripture, isn't it? He who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And if you want just a nugget to take with you into this week ahead, into a very hostile, difficult world, and with all of your struggles, just remember that God has begun a work in you, and he'll carry it on to completion. A friend of mine's uncle has become a Christian, and uh, we were just chatting about it the other day, and he said to me, you know, he says, you feel like they're so vulnerable. You feel like... You want to go and carry them. You, you want to make sure that they won't fall. You want to just go and smother them somehow to make sure that they keep pressing on. And we both just reminded ourselves that that would never work. And if it's truly a work of God, then God will carry it on to completion. And the Bible in First Peter tells us that we're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. I've probably told you this before. My grandfather was a drunk on the streets of Edinburgh. And he would come and visit us. And out the door he would go with pockets full. And if you wanted it, you know where you found it? In the pawn shop. And you had to buy it back. Just the way he was to feed his addiction. And uh, that's what it means to redeem something. We've been redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. God couldn't redeem us with money. Buy us back. Pay Satan off. We've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And the reason for that is, when Adam was in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, in the Garden of Eden, God said to him, the day you eat the fruit is the day that you will die. And they ate the fruit, and they did die. Their spiritual death became immediate, and their physical death became inevitable. They started to die. And if that sentence was ever going to be lifted, you know what we needed? We needed someone to come and die that death for us. And that's what Jesus did. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In our place condemned he stood. Sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. 
Let's pray and give thanks for the bread. Father, we thank you for uh, this bread which reminds us of the bruised and battered body of Jesus. And we partake of it today. We, we, in our mind at least, we can go back to Calvary and see the abuse that he suffered. And we thank you that he gave himself for us. And we thank you that because of his great work of redemption, we've been redeemed. And uh, we pray that you'll accept our thanks for this bread. And as we crush it between our teeth and swallow it, help us to remember that Jesus was crushed. And we have partaken of him. And uh, by faith, help us to do that even today. We pray. Amen.